Whether you're an entrepreneur, event planner, political organizer, video producer, cattle farmer, fashion designer, architect, real estate agent, or magazine editor, Airtable can help you create your way. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com slash Founders Project. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, meet Henry Ward, co-founder and CEO of Carta, an ownership network that's changing how assets are acquired, valued, and transacted. Since Henry founded Carta in 2012, it's grown to a massive scale. Carta manages over $575 billion in equity for more than 11,000 companies. And in May of 2019, Carta raised $300 million in a Series E, which valued the company at $1.7 billion. Welcome, Henry. I'm so excited to get to interview you today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, having me. Um, So, Henry, let's start with the basics. Where was your aha moment to go out and start building Carta in advance of just the massive surge that we've seen of companies being created left, right, and center? Yeah, we looked at this problem or asked this question of why is it that I could buy back in 2013 General Electric stock for seven bucks, but if I was online, everything's done electronically, but if I were to invest in two founders in a garage, uh, it would cost me $20,000 in legal fees. It'd be a bunch of paperwork. And then 30 to 60 days later, I'd get a literally a paper stock certificate in the mail. And it was this question of why is the world bifurcated? There's two different worlds. There's this world of public market investing, which is all online and instant, uh, and then private market investing, which is all on paper and through law firms. Uh, and we wanted to solve that problem, build the financial infrastructure that exists that powers the public markets, and bring that down into the private markets. And that was the, the the moment that we decided to start the company. Henry, give us a little bit about your background. How did you end up here? What what were you doing before you started Carta? Prior to Carta, I started a different company, which was a bad version of Betterment or Wealthfront. It was a robo-advisor, and, and I couldn't get it off the ground. Uh, I was too early on that idea, which in hindsight was great because Carta is a way better idea than, than robo-investing is. Prior to that, I was in investment banking in France for a couple of years in Paris. And then prior to that, I was in Austin, Texas doing enterprise software. So I've always straddled a little bit of B2B software and financial infrastructure. So give us a sense, you know, where's Carta today? Where's it going? And what gets you most excited about the vision you're executing for the company? Sure. So we're about 700 people. We add about 50 people a month these days, uh, growing quickly across a few different business lines. So we sell equity management software to companies. We sell fund management software to investors. And then we have a a number of financial uh, products coming out, including liquidity products to give liquidity to employees and investors of private companies, uh, as well as some public market work uh, that we've started. So we have a number of vectors going Uh, And I think what gets us most excited broadly is that we think we're going to be able to democratize access to financial assets to everybody. So everybody will be able to invest in any asset uh, in the world. Right now, it's pretty restrictive. If you're not an accredited investor, you can't invest in private companies. Uh, And even if you are an accredited investor and you wanted to invest in a private company, you can't get out and sell your shares until it's a public company. And so to be an angel investor today, you have to be willing to invest in a company for a decade before you hope to get some of that money back. 
And so by creating uh, more access, more participation, and easier transacting on private companies by centralizing this and providing the financial infrastructure, we're hoping we can get all of America investing in private companies the way that right now only Silicon Valley people can. As somebody who feels incredibly passionate about uh, just financial planning for America and is worried about income equality in America. When you started Carta, did you have a fulsome sense of just how big this could be? Or was it you were really focused on let's make it easier for small companies to get up and running? And then you quickly started to realize, wow, the tailwinds behind this are massive and you can actually create an entire private market ecosystem. Was the vision always that big or was it a little bit of you quickly began to see how quickly the world was evolving towards private? Uh, We, from the very beginning, even in the seed deck, we were talking about we're going to build a stock market for private companies. That was the vision from the very beginning. That's so cool. I had no idea. That's awesome. Yeah, we definitely knew what we wanted to build. Um, We got very lucky in that. Certainly, we we didn't predict all the tailwinds that came along with us with this huge influx of venture capital, more billion dollar plus companies being created every year. It's certainly that the asset class has grown amazingly since we started the company, which we did not predict. So we've been very lucky uh, on that front. You know, and when we we looked at this, we also didn't at the time understand the wealth inequality piece of the equation. So we have this perspective of how labor evolved over time, and it started with serfdom. Uh, It's evolved now into this era of payroll. Uh, And we think the next era of compensation and labor is going to involve ownership. And it's obviously started in Silicon Valley, where if you work for a tech company in Silicon Valley, it's unheard of that you wouldn't get equity. But that's only true here. It's actually this debt, this payroll versus ownership difference is how our explanation for our income inequality is expanding. Payroll is, by definition, a debt product with bi-monthly coupons. And capital is an equity product. So in any economy that's expanding, whether it's Silicon Valley as an ecosystem or global GDP, debt accumulates linearly, but equity accumulates exponentially. And so that's why wealth inequality is expanding. Investors and owners of productive assets are getting richer, while wages and labor uh, aren't because they're on the debt stack. And so our contribution to the wealth inequality problem is can we make it easier for companies to pull more people off the debt stack and onto the equity stack? Wow. We didn't see that one uh, when we started it. We really looked at it as democratization, but we've really latched onto this idea that through our software, we can create more owners uh, uh, and create more wealth to more people. I assume the answer is you would agree with me, but this quote that's been going through my head a lot, which is that equity is the new land, particularly private equity, where you know people used to buy tons of land and be able to amass a ton of wealth. And this category of equity, which to your point is the fastest growing, and in many ways is disadvantaging people who have access to the stock market, where you're not seeing the fastest growing companies going for all the reasons. It's hard to get uh, to be an IPO-able company, comes with a ton of lift for the CEO and the management team. And as a result, companies are like, I'll just stay private longer. But that means people who have access to that equity stack then are in a position where they're seeing the largest area of growth. And fundamentally, that means that people who can't have access to that are actually missing out on the fastest growing category of equity that exists. And to your point, just in creating a bigger gap in the income inequality in America issue. And you're really there to solve that. That is incredibly cool. What is it like to work for Carta every day? Is that mission all over the walls? Is it available to every? I mean, does, does everybody that go to work recognize just how much you may be helping reset Americans' wallets? Yeah, you know, I think people at Carta certainly believe that 
uh, we can help close the gap by creating more landowners and fewer uh, farmers, uh, which is really the difference between shareholders and workers here uh, in, in today's world. The other problem we're solving that you mentioned is the world's changed. 20 years ago, you know, when Amazon went public, they went public at 400 million in market cap. Facebook went public at 100 billion. Uber just went public at 80. And so the average American's losing access to that growth curve between a billion to 100 billion. They can't get a 100x return on what used to be considered a very large company, a billion dollar market cap of company. They can't get 100x. Uh, only the accredited investors and venture firms and, and private equity firms can get that 100x. And then everybody else is relegated to 10% year over year afterwards with mature companies. And the government's been trying to figure out how to get companies to go public earlier to create more access to that early stage growth curve or that early growth curve for retail investors. But all of the rules that they put in to try to make that true have actually delayed IPOs. And so companies, to your point, are staying private longer. And our solution to that problem is just to create more access to private companies, not to try to force more companies to go public, which I think is going to be a tough current to swim against. As you think right now about just Carta, what are the one or two kind of internal goals that you guys are most focused on right now to keep building the company as quickly as you can? Uh, I would say the number one thing we're working on is really building the foundation. We're a platform company. We have a number of products already. We're launching many more in the next 24 to 36 months. And so making sure we get the platform right to support all these products, that's priority number one. And priority number two is recruiting. You know, we We'll hire uh, seven or 800 people next year uh, and making sure we get great people indoors that are passionate and believe in what we're doing. You know, we, we have a 50-year roadmap today. I mean, we haven't, we're not even done writing at all. Uh, and so finding people that care about building something for a, a decade or two of their career is hard, especially in today's labor environment. And so picking people that have the patience and duration to work on something for a long period of time, uh, that's hard. That's so interesting. A 50-year roadmap. I heard that right. Five zero. Yeah. I get it. You're trying to build the stock exchange of the future. It's a big, big, big idea. So I want to quickly shift towards you. Did you always know you were an entrepreneur? I mean, you started out in investment banking. Clearly, uh, you're incredibly passionate about this issue. But have you always been an entrepreneur, even when you were little? No, you know, I never thought I would do this. I got a taste of it. I worked for small tech companies when I was in enterprise software. And uh, and then I, I went to an investment bank for a little bit. And investment banking realized I wasn't for it. And I ended up through um, just moving here uh, for family, landing in Silicon Valley. And I never planned to start a company, but it was one of those things I didn't know anybody, didn't have a lot of skills, and was trying to figure out what to do. And it was sort of like if you just, if your family moved to Hollywood and you took drama class in high school, you might audition once just to see what it's like. So I started a company, my previous company that was like Betterment or Wealthfront. It completely died. I spent a year and a half grinding it out. And then, you know, after I went through the trough of depression and came back out, I was thinking about what to do next. And I just couldn't have imagined doing anything else. And I thought, well, hey, if I enjoyed being a failed founder that much, imagine if I was just moderately successful, uh, <laughs> how much fun that could be. Uh, and so I decided to take a second swing at it. And the second swing has worked out much better. I want to ask a question because I appreciate just like your complete sincerity on being a failed founder prior to this. How do you think that failure has helped make you a better CEO? To me, it's been huge. I don't know that I'm not recommending everybody has to fail to succeed. I, I wish I was not one of those people. <laughs> but for me, I got all the mistakes, the early stage mistakes out of the way. Like I learned everything that was wrong, how, what not to do. Uh, it was incredibly painful. I also think there's just something about fighting to survive that changes people. And, you know, 
I'm not one of these, like I managed the early seed days because I was just so ambitious and trying to save the world. It, it, it was because I was terrified of running out of money again. And there's just something that changes people when they do it. And I think I often say like fundraising is a great boot camp for entrepreneurs because it shows who's really resilient and who isn't. And the best form of resiliency is fear of death. Uh, and that was what, what I learned in the first company in the early days. The sec this company was actually died almost several times uh, as well. And so that's what I learned the most of. And I, I think, you know, there's a great Peter Thiel quote. Somebody asked Peter Thiel, hey, why, why does PayPal have such a diaspora of former PayPal people that went on to start companies, but you don't see it with Google or even Facebook? You don't see all these great companies being formed out of former Facebook or Google people, but you see them out of PayPal. And his answer was people join two types of startups. One is startups that die, and they were an employee there, and they realize, oh, startups are just too hard. So they don't have the tenacity to go build their own because they just haven't seen tenacity work. Or two, they join the startup that was too easy, like Google or Facebook, where like, oh, startups won't be easy, and then when it's hard, they give up. And he said PayPal is just hard enough. And I think I was lucky enough that I, I had two experiences that were just hard enough. I've never heard that. I love that. That is so fantastic. And it's funny, uh, we're in New York City and we were at an entrepreneurship dinner the other night and we were talking about like what makes us entrepreneurs in New York. There's a, a few of us just like so committed and so resilient. And somebody goes, we're New York City cockroaches. <laughs> you can try to kill us over and over and we don't. And I was like, well, I don't really want to be a cockroach, but that is a good analogy. Yeah, there's actually- um, We're crazy enough just to yeah. keep getting back up. Yeah, totally. There's actually a great- Post by Paul Graham, where he talks about don't die. And he says, startups are, tend to be pretty binary. They're either worth nothing or they're worth a lot. And so one way to think about startups is I got to figure out how to be worth a lot. The other way is I just have to worry about not dying. And then eventually I'll be worth a lot. And that really stuck with me that the early stage founders are all, or I think the great ones anywhere, are all about how do I not die today? And if you don't die for long enough, eventually you'll be worth a lot. And with that, we'll be right back after this. In the 1990s, an engineer and avid bird watcher named Eiji Nakatsu was fascinated by the way the kingfisher could dive into the water without making a splash. He later designed a new high-speed train for Japan Railway West based on the shape of the kingfisher's beak, which broke world speed records while reducing noise and energy consumption. This creative breakthrough is brought to you by Airtable. Learn more and get a special offer for Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com forward slash Founders Project. Okay, so let's go back to like you. You are on this crazy rocket ship. And if you can't tell from my kind of enthusiasm for what you're building, not only do I just see how big it can be, but I spent 12 years studying America's wallets. And I think you are truly hopefully creating something that levels the playing field and there aren't enough companies doing that you have a big run ahead of you uh you're already at a point where you built almost two billion dollar business at some point it'll be a 10 to 20 billion dollar business that's hard what's keeping you sane what keeps henry on the rails <laughs> routine and structure uh i just you know every minute of my day is managed organized I, I have as much routine as i can you know i wake up at the same time all my calls start 7.15 a.m. in the morning every day. It's exactly the same start time. End time can vary a little bit, but by and large, uh, routine and structure and keeping my life organized 
um, is hugely valuable because you have so much stuff to focus on that as much as you can eliminate all the like, hey, what am I going to eat today? Hey, you know, wh wh what time do I wake up tomorrow? Do I change my alarm clock? I eliminate all the noise as possible uh, and just focus on structure and routine. It, it helps keep you know, at least keeps my world uh, organized and sane when the rest of the world is not so much. When I was uh, building Learn Best, I used to eat the same breakfast and lunch every day. And it made me like sound like the world's most boring person. But I was just like, you only have so much mental energy. It's like you truly have to cut out as much as you possibly can. Give me another sense of like, what are you doing these days? Is there something you swear by a product you're using, an app you're using, a routine that you are using to kind of replenish yourself? Because as much as routine and sleep, I get it. Like what recharges you? So the second one that I use is uh, humor. I, I actually don't get these other CEOs that get upset when things go wrong because so many things go wrong. Like everything goes wrong <laughs> all day. That's Obama used to say, you know, by the time a problem got to his desk, there was like 50 levels of government officials that tried to solve this problem. And not only couldn't solve the problem, but were so inept at solving the problem, they had to go tell their boss they couldn't solve their problem. So by the time it landed to Obama, he had the hardest problems in the world, literally, to solve. And it's like that at their CEO. It's you, by definition, will get all the hardest problems. And it's just one after another. And whenever we do things that are just ridiculously dumb, which happens all the time, I don't understand how CEOs can survive and get angry at it. It's just, you have to find the humor and everything. So most of my day is enjoying the chaos. I'm only laughing because I had somebody great who worked with me, um, one of the smartest people I'd ever worked with. And, you know, someone had asked her, what's it like to work with Alexa? And she was like, well, you know, she gets punched in the face every day and doesn't even know it. And I think at some point you just build this resilience where you do have to laugh. And I don't know if you have children, but I, I have little kids. And I think being a CEO is like incredible training for being a parent because you just have to laugh when all of all the trains come off the track. It inevitably happens at the exact same time where it's not one thing goes wrong. It's like six things go wrong and you're a human and you're supposed to be able to like clean it all up quickly. You have to laugh at those moments. It just it's inevitable. But I think you're absolutely right, which is like you just don't have the emotional energy to get mad because like humor is a much better way to stomach it. I haven't heard someone articulate it that way, but it, it's so fantastic. Totally. Totally. As you've been building your team, so it's like for everyone out there listening, Carta is adding, I mean, you said 50 people a month. That's crazy. And hundreds of people next year. What else do, should people know um, applying to come work for Carta? What do you look for when it comes to a hire outside of an incredibly long-term commitment to your what you're building? Do you have a favorite interview question that you use or a real kind of kernel of a trait of somebody that you want to be on the, the Carta team for culture? Sure. So, you know, we have this view of the world that, that, we have this kind of math equation we talk about, which is ability equals IQ times EQ. You know, if we're finance people, we, we trade on arbitrage. We think the world overvalues IQ, you know, Stanford, Harvard, PhDs, like all that kind of stuff. And we think it vastly undervalues EQ. And so where we feel like we have competitive advantage is finding really high EQ people. Uh, and so one of the things we really look at is, you know, self-awareness, understanding of people, understanding of others, trajectory over experience, passion, all of those things. And so, you know, often one of my questions is around how does this person bridge their IQ academic achievement with their EQ ability? And so, you know, it, it depends on the person. But as an example, sometimes I interview lawyers, we, we hire a lot of lawyers and compliance people. And we, you know, their law is about rules, but there's also a lot of gray area. And there's always two types of lawyers or two types of compliance people. 
There's lawyers that live in black and white, and there's lawyers that live in gray. The vast majority of lawyers live in black and white. We need to work with lawyers that live in the gray. And so one of the, as an example, one question I'll always ask lawyers that live in the gray is I'll ask, hey, what is it about you that made you the gray type of lawyer and not the black and white one? And then I really understand, are they truly a gray lawyer? Do they understand why they're a gray lawyer? And it is, a, is it a function of them as a person and their kind of awareness of, the, of their craft? Or did they fall into it by accident? So then you can apply that question to what is it about you that made you uh, a data scientist and specializing in machine learning? Yep. Henry, so you went from being an entrepreneur of a failed company to an entrepreneur of a company, to your point, with tons of beautiful tailwinds. Overnight, you're going to be the CEO of a company at some point with 2,000 employees. How are you thinking about your own leadership evolution through that? And kind of what's your philosophy on making sure that you're constantly staying your best outside of the structure, the routines, that sort of thing? Like, how are you getting better? You know, I do a ton of like, you know, it's I exercise for my body, I do therapy for my mind. And then the second one is, I'm a good listener. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds a little obvious, everybody thinks they are, but I, I do listen well, and I learn well. So for example, we did an executive offsite, and we had the our team building consultant people come and help us do team building. And in one of the sessions, I said, look, why don't you take 30 minutes, I'll step out of the room, and all the execs can kind of give me feedback and tell me what I should do better. Granted, it took two and a half hours. I, I don't know why it took that long, but it took way longer than 30 minutes. But they gave me a thing, and this was all the stuff, and I put it up on my wall, and I just started practicing. And so one of the things, one of the big feedbacks for me is, you know, as an early stage founder that very quickly turned into a late stage founder, so I hadn't quite evolved. And an early stage founder, especially one like me, I was a gunslinger. I am a wartime CEO. And so I just make decisions quickly. You know, I'd turn the steering wheel all the way to the left if I wanted. I'd do whatever I wanted, which is a huge advantage when speed matters in the early stage. It's a liability when bad decisions actually are very expensive and harmful. Uh, so you really want to measure two or three times when you get in the later stage, then that's not true in the early. And so I remembered that, and it took a while. And I told my executive, I'm like, look, I'm working on it. You guys have to remind me if, if I gunsling too quickly. Uh, and they did. And now I'm way better at making measured decisions. And so you just pick the things that you want to get better at or you think you need to get better at. Then you tell all the people you work with, hey, this is what I'm trying to get better at. So I need your help to help me uh, get better at it. And you grind it out. I love that. And thank you for being so honest. I was an athlete in college. Uh, I was a diver. And uh, you have intense training because you have to practice. And um, I feel like it's really important. You aren't like born a CEO. You, you, you know, it's the same sort of skill set of like having somebody around you that can make sure that you keep getting better. Um, not only is it really helpful and therapeutic, but I think the world's evolving too. So it's like there's there's a long list of things that you have to keep staying really good at. And so giving yourself that psychological safety to just take the feedback and, and lean in. Yeah, I agree with Alexa. I was just going to add the CEO job's really interesting because it's the job that you you are never always good at. Because But if you start doing something as CEO, that's like the most important thing for the company, all this kind of stuff. So you start doing it and then you get good at it and you figured it out how to do this that's actually when you then go hire somebody to go do it for you. And then you go do the next thing. And so the CEO job is the one job you're actually never good at. Uh, because once you're good at it, you hire somebody else to do it for you. A hundred percent. And as a result, you're, again, constantly in a place of evolution, which is uh, the one thing that's constant about seeing, being the CEO is that you're solving the worst and hardest problems. <laughs> and you know, I, th I think people really, I, I had an entrepreneur say to me the other day, 
who'd been a C-level suite and then became the CEO. And she said to me, I don't think I ever realized how hard the CEO's job was. It's really easy to be one step away and be like, God, that seems easy. Everybody does what you say and you get to make the final calls. But it's actually very much the inverse. Um, I view it as like you are the sponge of the company that absorbs the worst, has to make the hardest calls, and then is leaning into the nastiest and worst next problem. Uh, so it was just really, it was an interesting moment to see a C-level person become the CEO and say, God, I never really appreciated how unfun the job is, because from far, it's really easy to think it's the most fun job. Well, the, the other funny thing about that is, and I tell my execs this, because uh, every time we get a management consultant in here, you know, to help us be better, they'll say, oh, you know, what you guys do is just so hard. And of course, we're all like, oh, yeah, it is. So what we do is just so hard. It's not. Being part of a successful company is easy. Being the CEO of an unsuccessful company, that's It's very hard, hard. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm really lucky. Yeah. Last, just a few quick questions. I wanted to know, so what's been your coolest kind of pinch me moment at Carta so far where you were like, wow, I can't believe this happened? So a kind of older, old friend and early investor, you know, put in $50,000 into my seed round when I needed cash. And then a, a couple of years or three years later, something like that, uh, we ran a liquidity program and I, I said, if you want to sell, you know, please sell, you know, go long, whatever. He sold a portion of it because his wife wanted to buy, they, they want to eventually move back to Austin, Texas. So they went and bought a condo uh, for them to go visit their kids in Austin, Texas. And with, with the sale of the, of his investment and um, they sent me a picture of it and like to take $50,000 and then return whatever 12 to 15 X of that. So they could go buy a house to visit their kids like that. So material. That was one of the, the proudest moments. And then I, I had another one where an early employee did something similar. Th those are the proud moments that you took something and then you gave it back. When LearnBest got acquired uh, in 2015, I saved all the emails of our team sending me the notes where they could now pay for their kids to go to college. And I think I sat there with like tears streaming down my face being like, that is incredible. The people that get to be part of something that materially changes their lives and their kids' lives. So I, I totally hear you. Last, just quick two questions. So if you were going to pay it forward to an entrepreneur that's starting a company today, just given everything that you've been through and everything that you've learned, what's just like one piece of advice that you feel like everybody uh, you would want if you were going to do this all over again? Uh, <laughs> I probably tell them not to listen to too much advice. You know, I tend to think, I actually was just talking to a founder this morning about this and she asked, Hey, so what advice do you, she's a, a series A founder. She says, what advice do you have for me? And I said, you know, I, what surprises me when I meet founders is how different we are. We just, the path to success is so different. Uh, and every founder is different and what drives them and their skill, all those things. We have much more differences than we have things in common. And so I think one of the mistakes that a lot of founders do is there's sort of view defined by business schools and business books. Like there's a prototypical, if you are like this person, you'll be a great founder. And I'll actually flip it, which is I think the best founders I've worked with are very true to themselves. That doesn't mean they don't learn from around them, but build the company in your own molds. I think it's really bad advice to try to follow somebody else's. I love that you say that. And I uh, just had um, Max Levchin on the show and, you know, 
it just very different types of founders that are so authentic to who they are and also their value system. I think it's really simple. And one of the things I love about the fact that it's 2019 and I think we as a culture are getting really good at being like, just be your authentic self because you actually are your best self at work, at home, with your friends, when you can just be yourself. And I, I think that's really phenomenal advice. And so that leads me to my last question, which is if there was one company other than Carta that you um, are excited about that early stage or a startup or something new that you just can't get enough of um, or that you think is a big idea? What is it? Well, you know, it's timely. I This founder, her name is um, uh, Allison. She's the founder of Modern Health. Um, and I just got to know their company. I just wanted to meet her because I'm a fan of what they do. I'm not an investor or anything, but they she's basically trying to democratize access to mental health care. She just closed a Series A from Kleiner Perkins. It's just it's a space, and if I didn't do Carta, I would do something like, I would do a company in that space. It's something I'm personally passionate about. She's got a phenomenal vision. Uh, they're crushing it. Super impressed. Like, I, I, it's, a com- it's a type of company I just really want to succeed. So anyway, yeah, if you want an intro, happy to connect you with it. I would absolutely love that. Well, first, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about Carta, head to www.carta.com and join us next week for Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And thank you so much, Henry. You are just such a special founder and your enthusiasm for what you're building comes through. And just you missed 